Well, welcome and Merry Christmas. It is, it is so good to, uh, to be together. And uh, tomorrow's the big day, huh? Huh? Yeah. Yep, tomorrow's the big day. Yep, some child over here said yes. <laughs> was it Kira? <laughs> it was Hunter? No, it wasn't you? You gonna get some cool stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, Merry Christmas. Um, for today's message, I want us to turn over to an amazing uh, passage, a messianic prophecy about the coming Messiah um, in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. And this incredible text not only foretells the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, but it describes some of his titles and the works that come through these titles that describe who he is. You know, and every, every year you have these holidays and you have to kind of think about what am I, what am I going to preach on? I know it's got to be about the birth of Christ. It's Christmas. You know, around Easter time, it's the resurrection. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll just go to the Old Testament. And so we're going to be in Isaiah 9 today. But it does describe some things about the coming Messiah. Remember the context. Isaiah's talking about him coming in the future. And it does describe some titles or names that he has. At the time of its writing, and that's between 740 and 701 B.C., so that's roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ. That's when Isaiah was written. During its time of writing, the northern kingdom of Israel was about to be attacked and plunged into some really, really deep darkness by the Assyrian nation. And that's because the people of the northern tribes did what the Israelites pretty much always do and like all of humanity does. And it, it forsakes God and gives itself over to idols and worships everything but God. And, and this was happening in the northern kingdoms. And so God is... God is, in a sense, because he's sovereign, thrusting his own people into deep darkness at the hands of the Assyrians because of their rebellion. So when Isaiah writes this passage, this particular section, that's the context. They're about to go into a, a, a lengthy season of darkness because of their sin and idolatry. And two tribes in particular uh, of, of the northern tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, they would be the first to be invaded and essentially gobbled up by the Assyrian invaders. How many of you have maybe an Assyrian friend? I have some Assyrian friends. My hairstylist is an Assyrian. It's amazing to talk to her about, and she's a Christian, but it's amazing to talk to her about Assyrian history. I, I don't think in the history of the world there's ever been a more brutal group of people during that time. They did the most incredible, and when I talked to her about this, she's like, but I'm very nice. I'm like, yeah, I know, but historically, you're not known to be nice. Uh, but this, this group of people, this people group, were just lethal. And they had a nation at that time. They don't now. They're scattered. But they would do things like bury their enemies up to their necks, dip their heads in honey, and then release ants on them. I mean, they were absolutely brutal. And so why do I say this? Not to gross you out. Hunter probably likes it because it sounds pretty cool, right? But 
Just to give you an idea of the brutality of this people group, of this kingdom, Assyria, it is at the time the most powerful nation and kingdom in the world, the Assyrian nation is. And, and it's about to stomp the light right out of the northern tribes. And it begins with Zebulun and Naphtali. They would be the first to be gobbled up. Zebulun was between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. So it's kind of fixed between those two bodies of water. And Naphtali was a little bit more to the north and west of the Sea of Galilee. So geographically, think of the land of Israel, think of Galilee and near Galilee. That's where these tribes were settled. Prior to this absolutely obliterating and devastating invasion, Isaiah speaks a prophetic word to the remnant of believers because the remnant of believers are rarely, if ever, spared. Like the actual people that are committed to God, they're rarely, if ever, spared from this kind of discipline. It's not that the discipline's aimed at them, but they're part of that group. And when the discipline comes, when the darkness comes, they're going to have to deal with it as well. And so Isaiah is addressing in chapter 9, he's writing to, and in chapter 8 and 7, he's writing to the remnant, the faithful people that are going to kind of get sucked up into this thing. And he gives them a prophetic word. He encourages them to continue to trust in the Lord and to walk in the light when their lives and land are overcome by darkness. Isaiah 2.5 speaks to this. So, so knowing that, prophetically knowing that judgment and darkness is coming, he's addressing the believers and saying, yeah, you're going to get swept up into this. You need to trust the Lord when it comes. You need to walk in his light when it comes. That's the whole point of chapter 9. And I think Isaiah's challenge is very, very timely. I mean, today the, the remnant, the true church, which I think is much smaller than what we see visibly, the remnant in America finds herself in a very similar situation, right? Our land has been conquered and carried away by another ancient foe, the devil. We at even this very moment, are surrounded by darkness. You look outside and say, well, it's very light. It's very lit outside. And yeah, there's some fog. And all. Let's think in terms of spiritual darkness. And then in, in, in other forms of darkness with all the evil. So Isaiah is addressing a remnant in the midst of their darkness and in the midst of darkness getting worse. And that's why this is so timely for us, because we as the remnant find ourselves in a, in a very, very similar situation. I mean, would we all agree, as if you're a Christian, wouldn't you agree that these are very dark times? Can you recall a time in U.S. history when things were this dark? Maybe you were around during a war, and you could say, yeah, I think so. But, I mean, talking about the homeland... It's very dark right now, very dark. And it's not because of one political party or one side of the aisle. It's because of Satan. Satan has blinded the minds of people, destroyed all logic and rational thinking. 
causing men and women who walk in darkness to think that men are women and women are men and just think about it. These are incredibly dark times. And because of this, we too need to be encouraged. The remnant needs to be encouraged. You know, I talk to people all the time and they're believers and they say, I've never seen things like this. This is amazing. How are we going to deal with it? Well, I think Isaiah has some wisdom for us. And I would say that we do, uh, you know, us now, us people in this room and Christians today, we possess quite a few advantages over Isaiah's immediate audience, don't we? His people were looking forward to the coming Messiah. He hadn't come yet. They were waiting for him, not knowing when he would arrive. And they were waiting for him to come and to, and to bring the deliverance with him that he would bring. They were hoping for that. They had faith in the future and coming of Messiah and the deliverance he would bring. But we, however, have advantages. We are looking back to a degree because Messiah came about 2,000 years ago. Right? See, they were looking forward. We look back. And in fact, we are in a way looking forward too for his second coming. But he's already come and he's already done some of the things that Isaiah talks about here. So we have advantages. This is, is, is essentially what we will focus. Well, this is really what we focus on and celebrate at Christmas time. It's not just the birth of Christ, but what he would bring and what he would do. What Isaiah talks about. Isaiah's messianic prophecy here in chapter 9, therefore, serves as a reminder that the Messiah has already come into the world and that we, the remnant, the people of God, the remnant, should do as Isaiah encouraged his people to do in that day, and that is to trust in the Lord and walk in the light. That's what you do during dark times, even though it might be difficult. So this text will serve as a great reminder to us for these things. The title of this message is The King of Light. If you're not there already, please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 7. I'd like to pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, thank you for Christmas and what it symbolizes, the arrival and entry of our King Jesus into the world to fulfill the promises and prophecies of Isaiah. More than that, to save his people. And so, thank you for Isaiah and his writings and how they will serve as a reminder of, of what we already have and what we are to do. We're, not, we're looking forward to the second coming of Christ, but we can look back to his first coming and how some of these prophecies have already been fulfilled and how we are the recipients and covenant people of that. So it should be a great joy for us this morning as we look at the text, a great reminder Thank you for the parallels between Isaiah's audience and us today. Teach us from your word. May we be humbled and trusting in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's pick up at verse 1. Verse 1, I'll read it. Yep, we've got it up on the board. And this is how Isaiah starts this phenomenal chapter. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Stop there. This paragraph is the starting point of Isaiah's prophecy regarding Messiah's deliverance. He begins by stating that the, the gloom, anguish, and contempt that Zebulun and Naphtali will experience, he is saying it's not going to last forever. Why is he saying this? Because he knows that the Assyrians are going to come and thrust this land into darkness and despair and slavery and every horrific thing that you can imagine because these people, the Assyrians at this time, were bloodthirsty. And he's saying it's going to come, but it's not going to last forever. He says in latter times, yes, uh, firstly, he says in the former time, God brought you into contempt for your rebellion. That's the idea of the Assyrians coming and, and just devastating them with God's judgment. Then he says in latter times, God will make these lands glorious. And he gives the span from the sea, that's the Mediterranean, to beyond the Jordan River. That's basically the whole land of Israel. And Isaiah goes on to call one particular region or the region that is beyond the Jordan, he calls it Galilee of the Nations. This is a, a really interesting title. And for those of us who have studied the New Testament, we know quite a bit about Galilee. A lot of the New Testament geographically is focused on that particular land. It was just the agricultural or central valley, like we have our central valley. It was that of Israel. There's nothing really significant about it. It's just a territory that's fertile and it's a great place to grow crops. And you've got the Jordan River that feeds the agriculture there. But he calls it the Galilee of the nations and you don't really see this anywhere else. Certainly not called the Galilee of the nations in the New Testament. So he gives it this kind of special title. Usually it's just called Galilee. It's just the agricultural hub of Israel, like the Central Valley. It's not significant like Jerusalem down in Judea or other places. It's, it's the Modesto. Whoopity-doo. Why does Isaiah apply this special title to little insignificant Galilee? Well, we don't know for sure why Isaiah says this, but I think that we can draw an inference, and I think it's because... He seems to know and understand that Galilee is going to be made significant because it's where the Messiah will be born. It's where the Messiah will grow up. It's where the Messiah will perform most of his ministry. Did you know that? Micah 5.2, Matthew 2.23, Matthew 4.13. Yes, what I'm saying is that Bethlehem Nazareth and Capernaum are all in Galilee. And those are the three places that Jesus spent most of his time. Isn't that interesting? Since Galilee is, in a sense, the launch point, and since the Messiah's ministry would be global, right, because we know him as the Savior of just Galilee... No, he's the savior of the world. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Since Galilee is the launch point for all of this, 
And, and since Jesus's ministry would be global, shooting out from Galilee, Galilee therefore represents all the nations. This is why Isaiah calls Galilee Galilee of the nations, because from Galilee, the ministry of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ will go out to every nation, to the ends of the earth. That's the significance. That's why it's called that. Isaiah seems to know this somehow. Maybe it was revealed to him. So first verse deals with, yes, you're going to have trouble, but it's not going to last. And then this very significant place is mentioned because it's from that place that the deliverer and deliverance will come. Now let's move to verse 2. Isaiah says this, and this verse is very familiar to most of us, I would say, I would think. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Okay, Isaiah is describing how Zebulun and Naphtali will be made glorious after a period of darkness. He says, God will shine a great light on those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. He is referring he is referring prophetically to something down the road, but immediately to Zebulun, to Naphtali, which are about to be thrust into darkness. And he is saying it's not going to last because light will come. And I think this is an absolute clear reference to the birth and ministry of Messiah. Christ will be the light that God shines on Zebulun, on Naphtali, and upon the world. Now, incredibly, if you pay close attention to verse 2, these messianic promises or this messianic promise to Isaiah was so certain that he speaks as if it had already happened. And it had not happened. In fact, the invasion from Assyria had not yet happened. But Isaiah is talking as if this is all past tense. The words walked, seen, dwelt, and shown. Are they not past tense? How can Isaiah speak about something that hasn't happened as if it had? The clue and what you're supposed to derive or draw from this is the certainty of the promise. Isaiah treats it as if it's already happened to assure the people that it will. It is 100% guaranteed. The light is coming. And it will drown out and overwhelm the darkness. He is telling the remnant that you folks can bank on what I am saying here. It is as good as done. That's why you can bank on it. This light will come and it will shine on God's people. So keep trusting in him. Now the deep darkness that Isaiah mentions here in verse 2, does not refer only to what the Assyrians would do. There's no doubt they're going to bring darkness with them in the pain and suffering and murder and slaughter and slavery. The northern tribes are headed for a very, very dark season, just as they were later on down the road with the Babylonian invasion and exile. It's very similar things about to happen here, beginning in the northern tribes. But Isaiah is not referring only to what the Assyrians will cause or bring through the disciplinary hand of God. 
It also refers to the spiritual darkness that God's people often encounter. Like during the reign of Ahaz, the wicked king that was in charge during the Assyrian invasion. King Ahaz is at the helm. He's on the throne and he was horrible. An idolatrous, nasty, worthless king like most of Israel's kings. He was a man of darkness. And so I think in a way there's a parallel for us in our political system. We feel like we're being ruled by dark leadership, don't we? I mean, there is darkness in our government on all sides, pushing darkness. The northern tribes knew what this felt like because most people didn't care, just like most Americans don't care because they're in the darkness and it's what they love and know. But the remnant recognizes it and doesn't like the fact that we're being ruled by darkness or darkened leaders. There's great parallels to us here. The light, though, will shine on Zebulun, Naphtali, and all around the world, delivering God's people from spiritual darkness. On at least two separate occasions, Jesus applied Isaiah's prophecy to himself. Did he not? In some ways, this message will be an apologetic in defense of Christ being the Messiah that Isaiah talked about. But, I mean, we know these things. But on two occasions, Jesus applied verse 2 right to himself. He declared, I am the light of the world. Did you ever stop to wonder what he meant when he said that? He's referring to this, this moment in Israel's history, this prophecy that was to come. I am the light that has been sent into the world to illuminate Naphtali, to illuminate Zebulun, to illuminate the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, John 8, 12. That is Jesus applying the messianic prophecies of Isaiah right here in our text to himself. At another point, he said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, John 12, 46. <laughs> Jesus is the, Messiah, is the Messiah Isaiah spoke of here 700 and something years earlier. During his first coming, which is what we celebrate at Christmas time, he focused on bringing spiritual deliverance. He shined brightly as he preached the gospel. And he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross to atone for sin. He was buried. And then he rose from the grave on the third day to deliver God's people from spiritual darkness. And during his second coming, which is what we're anticipating, he will come in bright, as the light, he will come in bright, blazing glory to deliver God's people physically from all earthly adversaries and oppressors, from all of the Assyrians of history in the future. He will deliver us from all of those oppressors, physical oppressors. So you have a twofold deliverance, first spiritually in the first coming, and then in the second coming, you have the physical deliverance. And I think Isaiah is pointing to both in verse 2. Now let's move to verse 3. Listen to what Isaiah says. And, and these are all the consequences and results of this light and Messiah coming. 
He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide spoil, the spoil. Stop there. Isaiah is describing the prosperity and joy God's people will experience when the Messiah comes and delivers them spiritually and physically. The, 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 the remnant, the people of God, their rejoicing will be like that of farmers during the harvest. Every time the harvest came in, farmers were elated and, and they were just, they were so thrilled and happy because now they would be able to feed their families in a better way or they would be able to sell their crops. They would be able to give to God what God calls them to give. I mean, harvest time was a, a really, really big thing in ancient antiquity, especially Israel. So the people of God will rejoice like farmers rejoice during the harvest when it comes in or like that of soldiers when they divide the spoils of war between their comrades. That's what Isaiah is saying. You know, when you win the battle and you get all the, the booty and the goodies from the adversary that you just conquered and smashed, you take the goodies and you spread them out. And it's a joyful time. Man, I'm glad we took out that house with a PlayStation 5. I always wanted one of those. Weird example, but it's the way they thought. They got things that they didn't have before. To the victor go the... Yes. Isaiah is saying the people of God are going to prosper and rejoice when the light comes and brings deliverance, spiritually first and then secondly, physically. That's the point. The point is that the prosperity and rejoicing of God's people is going to reach unprecedented or unparalleled heights when their deliverance is completed by Messiah and he establishes a new creation. Because that's the ultimate deliverance is to deliver this entire creation from out from under the bondage of sin that it is under and to, to recreate in a new creation where Prosperity is not entirely possible, but an entire fact and where joy is unmitigated and forever. You can't have that in this creation. Verse 3, there's kind of stipulations surrounding it. It has to be a new creation for those promises to be fulfilled because they cannot be carried out in this creation. When he establishes a new creation, that is when... Now, don't get me wrong. When a person is delivered spiritually by this light, by Christ, that Messiah, by our Messiah, there is prosperity, spiritual prosperity. There is rejoicing. There is joy that you never had. It's there. So Isaiah is pointing to that. But there is coming a day when he returns and he defeats every every adversary, every oppressor, thus making them his footstool, that is when the elation and prosperity of the remnant of God's people will reach the pinnacle. It's going to be amazing. And Jesus, like with the last couple of verses, he totally fits the description here perfectly. He brings the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If you are in Christ, you are a what? New creation. He makes a new creation out of people and he will do it with all that is physical. 
He himself, who is seated on the throne in Revelation 21.5, says, I make all things new. It's Jesus speaking. He brings prosperity and the fullness of joy. Philippians 4.19, John 15.11. He is the Messiah that Isaiah spoke of here. Let's move to verses 4 and 5. Listen to these continued prophetic descriptions. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Mm. Verse 4 describes the physical deliverance God's people will experience at the end of their exile into Syria. Okay, so this has a direct application. At the end of their exile and oppression at the hands of Syria, they are, a God is going to smash and destroy Assyria and deliver his people physically. And maybe it will begin in Zebulun and Naphtali. And we must remember that those two places, those two areas, those two sections of Israel were going to be the first to be gobbled up by the Assyrians. And so there is, a, there is the promise of physical deliverance from this foe right here in Isaiah's prophecy. I think that's what he's speaking to mostly. These Assyrian oppressors... They're going to place a yoke of burden on God's people. They're going to keep them in check with the rod. That's what that is. That's the rod of discipline, the rod of punishment. In other words, God's people at the hands of the Assyrians, they're about to be worked like farm animals, like oxen, because that's how you got plowing done. You took two oxen and you yoked them together. There is a yoke coming for God's people. They, in other words, they are going to be put in forced slave labor at the hands of the Assyrians. But Isaiah is saying it's not going to last forever because God, day, God will one day break the Assyrians' yoke and rod like he did with Midian. What is he referring to now? He's referring to Gideon. Gideon's tiny little self and tiny little military taking on a superpower, the Midianites, and completely devastating and destroying them because God was with Midian. The Midianites were known as slavers and slave traders. Who was Joseph sold to from the pit? He says, it's going to be just like it was in Midian. And he's referring to when Gideon went into Midian and whooped him. And do you know where Gideon's battle took place? Zebulun and Naphtali. All these connections are here. We don't quite understand them as well as the Jewish mind would have because they know their history. They did back then. So verse 4 is, is talking about a physical deliverance that will come, that they will be brought out of the Assyrian control and oppression, physically delivered from that at, at some point. Of course you could parallel and tie that to what Christ will do at his second coming. 
There are oppressions that are happening now to us. There are physical oppressions that are going to intensify over time. And there's coming a moment where Jesus will return and crush all the oppressors. He will break the rod. He will break their yoke that they place on God's remnant. So the parallels are there. And verse 5, I think, is, is, is quite startling. Isaiah is using, I think, really terrifying apocalyptic poetry to describe Messiah's victory over God's enemies then and now or in the future. He says that the, the Messiah is going to the life that's coming into the world. He's going to take the boot of every trampling warrior who battles against God's people in tumult and every bloody uniform or garment they wear and burn them as fuel for the fire. That's apocalyptic language. That's the kind of stuff you read in the book of Revelation when the Lamb of God, the Messiah Christ, comes back and unleashes God's wrath on the world. Same language. Isaiah's using it here. There is some of this apocalyptic wording and, and poetry and literature in Isaiah's writings. And I think that this idea of burning the, the, the uniforms and the boots of the soldiers, which represent the, the full soldier, right? He's talking about the soldiers, the, 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 the oppressors that come against God's people. When he talks about the boot, he's talking about their feet. When he talks about the uniform, it includes a helmet. He's talking about from head to toe, the entirety of these oppressors is going to be thrown into the fire as fuel for the fire. What are we talking about here now? This is a metaphor for hell. Now, what should be swirling in your mind is the idea of Revelation 20, where Christ returns and judges all unbelievers, all adversaries and oppressors. Great white th throne, think that. And at the, end of that, at the end of that narrative, where are they put? They are cast, they are thrown into the lake of fire. Isaiah's prophesying that here. That's the end the ultimate end of death, which is our ultimate adversary, and the ultimate end of all the earthly adversaries and oppressors, all will be cast away into eternal fire and torment. That's what he's talking about here. They are kindling. Isaiah is saying that, you know what, I... I understand and I empathize with you. You are going into a time of darkness at the, at the hands of the Assyrians. And quite frankly, the Israelites at this point should have been pretty accustomed to that because they'd been in darkness off and on throughout their entire lives. But he's saying, I know you're going into this. But what he's also saying is that, you know what? Their end, the end of the oppressors, the end of the adversaries, the end of the Assyrians, the end of unbelievers, the end of those who persecute believers and who have done that since the beginning, including the serpent and Hades and everything else, their end is going to be much worse than the darkness that you have to go through. That's what he's saying. He's trying to give them perspective. It's going to be tough, but it's nothing like those boot, you know, uniform-wearing oppressors, what they're going to experience. Look, their end is hell. He is saying their end is hell. Your end is glory. Your end is prosperity. Your end is joy. Is that not what he said in verses 1 and 3? So he's trying to make a contrast 
to build faith in them. Look, we got to go through some stuff, but it's nowhere near like what those who are going to harm us are going to go through. Perspective. And these descriptions, like, like the others, they, they fit Jesus perfectly. Perfectly. He crushed the head of the serpent, our spiritual slave master, Satan. That's the proto-evangelium in, in Genesis 3.15 that when Adam and Eve sinned, God prophesied that the seed of Eve, Jesus, would come and crush the serpent that deceived them. And that serpent is the, is the biggest and most successful and broadest, has the most numbers of slave, slaves in the history of the world, Satan does. Everyone who sins is a slave of his. And Jesus came and on the cross stomped his head. And, he, and Jesus fits perfectly. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Colossians 2.15 Jesus sets the people of God free. We are free indeed, right? If the Son has set you free, you are what? Free indeed. John 8, 36. Isaiah is speaking of a deliverer, a liberator, one who will deliver from spiritual and physical darkness. Does that not fit Jesus perfectly? We are no longer slaves to sin. No, not we, the remnant believers. We are now slaves to righteousness. Romans 6, 17, 18. How do you suppose that happened? Because the one who broke our chains and our slavery and crushed our slave master has delivered us. And we are no longer slaves to sin or to Satan or to hell or to death or fear or anything else. We are slaves to righteousness. Isaiah is talking about Jesus. Nobody in the history of the world fits this profile and nobody who comes in the future will except for Jesus on his second coming. And yet our freedom doesn't end here. It's in the text. Jesus is coming back to free his people physically and he will do it by casting every adversary, every enemy, every oppressor into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14 to 15. Just as Isaiah prophesies here in verse 5. So there is an immediate deliverance for God's people at Naphtali and Zebulun, but there is a distant deliverance for all of God's people. When Jesus comes the first time, it's a spiritual deliverance. When he comes the second time, it'll be a physical. That's the idea here in 4 and 5. In the remaining verses, Isaiah describes how Messiah will enter the world. He describes some of Messiah's names, and he describes Messiah's rule or rulership or kingship. Let's move to verse 6a, and this is the section I think we're most familiar with. This is what sounds the most like Christmas to us. Right? 6a, what does it say? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And he says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Let me tell you something right now. This, this is probably one of the most amazing verses in all the scripture. Isaiah's people, the people that he's writing to, including the remnant, they're terrified of what's to come. They're terrified of what's to come. Wouldn't you be? Would we not be terrified if China was approaching? 
with its billion, with its, I don't know, million man army? We, we would be like, okay, especially this day where I don't think any of us feel that our nation is strong enough to stand up to almost anything. It can't even take care of our southern border. How is it going to deal with a superpower like China? We would be shaking in our boots if they were coming. They were coming to the northern tribes. Assyria was the China of its day. The people, including the people of God, were scared. They were terrified. And now Isaiah is describing what's coming for them. But the kicker is, is that it all begins with a child. That's not very assuring. You're telling me that we are going to have to go through this and God's solution to this is a baby? Yeah. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying. A baby. <laughs> it's nuts. The power of God is so grand, so superior to the Assyrians, to all the nations of this world, that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering throughout history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is a child. Why? Because God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. God's solution to the worst that this world can bring against us is a baby. The Messiah who enters the world and delivers the world comes as a little baby boy. And yet he existed throughout all eternity. John 16, 28, John 17, 15, or verse 5, I mean, 17, 5. He also has no beginning nor end, Hebrews 7, 3. He is the eternal son that was, look at the text, given by the Father, verse 6a. He's given by the Father, which means that he existed beforehand. What he did was he came. He already existed. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. No beginning, no end. He's the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And he comes down. He condescends. As, as Dave mentioned earlier, he condescended. You know, to, to come down here to us and, and to take on flesh is, is a type of, um, it, it, it is to um, condescend, to stoop to our level. This royal king does this and he comes down and he takes on flesh and he's born unto Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem in Galilee. Romans 8, 3, Galatians 4, 4, Luke 2, 4 to 7. And he was given the name Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation in Hebrew. Matthew 1, 21. That's the child, the God's antidote and solution to the problem of sin and to the problem of oppression is a child, a divine child given into the world. The baby king. Mm. In the second half of verse 
6a, Isaiah warns the enemies of God not to scoff, right? Because and, if, and even for me, if I'm sitting there and I'm in a northern tribe Israelite and you're talking about all this deliverance and all the pain and suffering that's coming in the deliverance in the form of a baby, I'm not really sold on that. That's, that's like, okay, um, is he going to grow up real fast? I mean, is he going to be like the karate kid? How is he going to do this? I mean, think about it. If I come to Daryl and say, I know you've got all this struggle and all this travail and all this problems, here's a baby. I'm not sure that Daryl's going to say, thank you for, I now have to take care of a baby, right? If a man is drowning, you throw him a life preserver. You don't hand him a baby. So there could be some scoffing either by God's people when they read this or hear this. There would certainly be scoffing from the Assyrians. You think you're going to whoop us with a baby? And so it, it's like in the second half of this verse, Isaiah is saying, don't let this little, weak, helpless baby boy fool you. Why? Because the government shall be upon his shoulder. What does that mean? It means he is a king. It means the Messiah will be a king who will rule over every government what does Revelation 17, 14 and chapter 19, verse 16 call Jesus? King of, Lord of. <laughs> it's him. It's him. Jesus is the baby of 6a, the messianic king that Isaiah prophesied would come, starting humbly, coming down, condescending, and coming as a child. He's the son that was given, being born unto this virgin and her husband Joseph, and to grow up, and he's the king, and he would be this deliverer. That's what Isaiah is saying in 6a. Let's move to 6b. Listen to this, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wow, here's the names. Isaiah mentions what? One, two, three, four names here. The first is Wonderful Counselor or perhaps Wonder Counselor. It could be translated as Wonder Counselor. And wonder implies supernatural, something beyond human power. The term is used of the acts of God, not least of which are the Exodus events. Exodus 3.20 and Exodus 34.10. It was the particular task of the king to give wise counsel. In Solomon's case, this was more than natural wisdom. 1 Kings 3.28, he prayed for wisdom to lead God's people, did he not? And God said, I'm going to give it to you, plus riches. And Ahaz, who was reigning at the time that this was written, may have thought he was physically, or not physically, but politically astute and wise, but his policies became disastrous because he lacked this divine wisdom that Isaiah speaks of. And the same could be said of Herod the Great, who was the king ruling and reigning over the same territory during the time of Jesus' birth, Matthew 2.1. As wonderful counselor, the Messiah will possess unmatched wisdom, even greater than that of Solomon. And he was the wisest man to ever live. But this Messiah that Isaiah points to will be even wiser. It would be divine wisdom. And we see this in Jesus when he was just 
12 years old, he went to the temple and spoke with the religious leaders. How did they respond to him? Get out of here, kid. You're bothering me. No, they were amazed at his understanding and answers at 12. Luke 2.47, I was a junior high pastor for years. I was never amazed at 12-year-old answers to anything. Never. Rarely. There was one kid that did astonish me with his knowledge and went on to become a drug dealer in high school. Jesus at 12 is blowing the minds of the religious leaders and elite, the Sanhedrin type folks. They're at the temple, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He's in there talking theology with them and they're sitting there going, where did this kid get his degree? Jewish tech? I mean, their, their minds are blown. 12 years old. Later, when Jesus preached in the synagogues, the crowds were astonished because what? He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew 7, 28 to 29. Who were the scribes? The most theologically astute, educated leaders, religious leaders in that day were the scribes, not the Pharisees, certainly not the Sadducees, the scribes. And the people sit there and listen to this Jesus speak. And they say, this guy is a wonderful counselor. He, he teaches in a way that supersedes and exceeds and goes beyond the scribes that are here every Saturday. What is going on with this guy? Jesus is the wonderful counselor Isaiah spoke of. The second name, mighty God. That's been taken to mean God-like warrior, but it's used in Isaiah 10, 21, clearly referring to Yahweh, which makes that translation uh, kind of unlikely that that's all it means, maybe partially. Jeremiah 32, 18 uses the phrase in reference to the creator who is also the covenant Lord. Isaiah is saying that the Messiah will be of the same substance as Yahweh the Creator. In other words, he's going to be divine. He's going to be God. He's going to be mighty God. And this is the part that Jews then and today stumble over. They refuse to accept that the Messiah is divine. It confounds their view of monotheism. And their most prolific and significant prophet all time is Isaiah. And he understood this clearly. He preached it right here. This baby that's coming, the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be the wonderful counselor. And he will be, he himself, mighty God. Isaiah knows that God is sending God into the world to save. Jesus knew that he is God. He said, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. In fact, in defense of his deity, Jesus applied God's unique name to himself at least seven times. It's from Exodus 13, 14. I am, it's that word, that phrase, I am, the title of God. I am the bread of life, John 6, 35, 48, and 51. I am the light of the world, John 8, 12, and 9, 5. I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 7 and verse 9. I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11 and verse 14. I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. 25. I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. And I am the true vine, John 15, 
one. I love it when some folks try to argue that Jesus never claimed to be God. It's all he did. And that's what got him killed. Yeah. Now let's come at it from another angle. Only God, right? I think we would all agree. Just think logically and rationally. Only God, and we, we understand that this didn't come through some kind of a process or a big bang. We know and we understand that nothing produces nothing. We understand this. Only God could create the heavens and the earth. Amen? Amen. Right? There's no way that they could come through some kind of process or anything like that. Nothing can produce only nothing. We get this. That's just sound logic. So we know that only God could create. In fact, this is the testimony of Genesis 1 and 2. Amen? And that's a creation account, right? One lays it all out. Two describes things in greater detail. And yet, Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is Paul saying in that Colossians passage? Jesus is the creating or creative instrument that God used in Genesis 1 and 2 to create all things. Jesus is the mighty God who creates. He created everything. He is the mighty God. Jesus is the mighty God that Isaiah speaks of here. Third name, everlasting father, or it could be translated as father of eternity, and indicates a father figure who possesses the divine perfection of eternity. Many ancient kings claimed to be fathers of their people, but none was everlasting. Right? Father is not one of the more common terms for God in the Old Testament. It's not real common. We see, uh, we see it only in a couple places, and it refers to his care and gentleness, uh, specifically in Psalm 103, verse 13, and Malachi 2.10, which is at the other end of the Bible, or the other end of the Old Testament. And I think this description as everlasting father kind of balances the, the warrior image. Messiah is not an aggressive bully. He is one who knows our frailties and our weaknesses. That's what's meant by everlasting father. He has the benevolence and love and care and compassion and empathy as a loving father. That's what's meant. And this name fits Jesus perfectly. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15, amen. Mm. The way this fits perfectly with him, him being this, the same as God, the same substance, divine, and, and like a good brother to us, and like the Father in his love and compassion for his people. That's the idea here. Jesus has to be the everlasting Father, Isaiah spoke of. Fourth and final name, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace is a fitting climax to a passage that has spoken of the horrors of war. Peace is more than the absence of war, although the ending of violence is a necessary condition for it to be established. I think we would all agree. And this is what the messianic king and prince of peace will deliver. 
At first, he will establish peace between God and his subjects through a vicarious, atoning sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins. Sounds like Jesus. Later, he will establish peace and a new creation that involves a sense of personal well-being and material prosperity and a complete life of fulfillment and hope. That's what we get in the new creation. You will have peace without interruption because there will be nothing in the new creation to disturb the peace. This is what Isaiah is speaking to. When this prince of peace ushers in this new creation, the kingdom of God, a Davidic promise will be fulfilled. And we see it in 2 Samuel 7, 10 to 11. And this is what it says. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Man, this name, Prince of Peace, it fits Jesus Christ perfectly because he's the only one that can establish peace between you and his father whom you have offended through your sin. He's the one that brings that. He ends the war between man and God. And he is the one who will bring peace in a new creation. Isaiah couldn't have been speaking about anyone else. He couldn't have. It's Jesus and Jesus only. I mean, when Jesus saved people... He often told them to depart in peace. Luke 7, 58, and as well as chapter 8, verse 48. Why? Because they now had peace with God and could rest in God's mercy and grace. Jesus ended the war between that sinner and God. He brought peace between them. He brought reconciliation through his finished work between them. So he saves somebody. He, he saves a soul. The spirit regenerates. He saves a soul. And he says, you can now go in peace. Peace that you've never had. On the night of his arrest, while in the upper room, Jesus told his disciples that he will give them his peace that goes beyond anything the world can offer, John 14, 27. Now, on at least one occasion, Jesus declared that he had not come to bring peace on earth, right? You know this. Luke 12, 51, do not be mistaken. I have not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. He said this. How can he be the prince of peace? And also bring such division or say that he hasn't come to establish peace. Well, at that particular juncture, he said this to clear up theological misconceptions concerning himself, the Messiah. People thought Jesus was there to establish in that very moment global peace. You're going to bring all our adversaries, make them your footstool, smash everyone. This is why they foisted and hoisted Jesus up over their heads and said, Our king is here. He's come to destroy the Romans. And Everyone thought this. Even the disciples at some point thought this. But Jesus had come to preach and fulfill the gospel, which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 1.23, the gospel transforms people and it completely disrupts their regular patterns of life, does it not? It can set family members against each other, Mark 13.12. It might even turn an entire city upside down, like at Ephesus. 
Acts 19, 28 to 41. The gospel will establish peace between God and man, but it doesn't always establish peace between man and man. Why? Because men love the darkness and hate the light. John 3, 19. You see, Jesus understood these things. He is the wonderful counselor, and a wonderful counselor will know these things in advance. So he wanted to clear up the misconception that he was there to establish perfect peace on earth between men and men. The objective of his first coming was to establish peace between God and man through his reconciling death, burial, and resurrection. The objective of his second coming will be to establish peace in the new creation where newly resurrected men and women will enjoy perfect fellowship with the king and with one another forever and ever and ever. It will never be interrupted. They will have perfect peace from the Prince of Peace. Jesus will establish everlasting peace for this new humanity that lives in this new creation. He said himself, or actually he said through the apostle Paul, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17. What am I telling you? I am telling you that without a doubt, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. <laughs> Isaiah spoke of only he can bring peace between us and God. Only he can bring peace in the new creation, and he will. Verse 7a, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah is saying the messianic king, he's going to be the final king. There's no kings after him. He will reign forever is what he's saying. How can he have another king? He will not only continue to reign, but his kingdom will expand and to fill the whole earth, he says here. He will be in David's lineage and sit on David's throne, he says. But his kingdom will be unlike that of David and other kingdoms and even decent kingdoms like that under Josiah and maybe a handful of other Israelite kings. It'll be unlike David's kingdom. It'll be unlike the kingdoms and nations of the world with their corruptions because no matter how great a kingdom is, it still has its corruptions. Jesus' kingdom will be better because it is marked by justice and righteousness that have no end. Like everything else in this amazing passage of Scripture, this prophecy, this description fits Jesus like a glove. It fits him like an absolute perfect glove. Scripture teaches that he is right now, as I speak, enthroned in glory at the right hand of the Father as King. Mark 16, 19, Hebrews 1, 3, there's other passages. He is not just king and head of the church. He is king over the nations as I speak. People say he is coming to rule. This isn't completely accurate. He is not just coming to rule. He rules right now. There's no inauguration, as we used to say. He's like a president who's been voted in. He'll become king at some point. No, he's king, period. He possesses what a ruling king possesses, all judgment and authority. John 5, 22, Matthew 28, 18. He already has what a king possesses, which means that he must be ruling. His kingly rule in governments, governance is not limited to the church. 
He rules over the heavens and the earth, Matthew 28, 18. He's been given the authority. He's been given authority by God over the heavens and the earth. Only a king is given that authority. 28, 18 of Matthew. Not only is Jesus the king, Isaiah says he will expand his government. And how does he do this? By adding men, women, and children to his kingdom through the gospel. Jesus himself prophesied that he would, he, would, he would expand his kingdom in the parables of the mustard sea and leaven, Matthew 13, 31 to 33. He said these things start very small, but they grow and become very large over time. Like the mustard seed becomes a mighty tree that birds can nest in. He said this, and then he paralleled it to the kingdom of heaven. It's just like this. It starts small, but it grows. And that is exactly what is happening? Now upon, in the future upon his return, King Jesus will establish the kingdom of God on earth. Matthew 26, 29, Acts 1, 6, Revelation 21, 1 to 3. And it will be characterized by what Isaiah says here. It'll have no end. It'll be full of justice. It'll have righteousness. These things will be perfected and forever. Jesus is the Davidic everlasting king Isaiah speaks of here. It's, it's who he is. Totally. 7b, last verse, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah closes his messianic prophecy with an exhortation to trust God. He begins by referring to God as the Lord of hosts. This title is very pervasive in the Old Testament. About 261 times we see it. In fact, it appears two or three, maybe four times in the preceding chapters of Isaiah. As Lord of hosts, God is the all-powerful ruler over the entire universe. That's what that title means. He's the sovereign over all. He alone intervenes to provide victory for his people. He alone brings peace. At the same time, he is available to hear the prayers of his people. Psalm 80, verse 19. Isaiah tells his readers that the Lord of hosts is zealous to do the things that he's prophesying here. In other words, God is constrained by immutable holy zeal to deliver his people both spiritually and physically through the Messiah and thus fulfill all of Isaiah's messianic prophecies. He's going to do all these things. He's got this zeal that drives him to do these things, not because I said so, but because he said he would through me, and he will. And that's why we have these advantages over his audience, because we already have proofs that he's come and done a great many of these things. That's what's so wonderful, and that's what we reflect, reflect on on Christmas time. Amen? He says, the zeal of the Lord constrains him to do this. And now we're looking back and saying, he did these things. Most of them, not all of them. That's right, baby, testify. You're a dedicated kid. We possess certain advantages over Isaiah's immediate audience. The promised child was born. The wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the Davidic everlasting king. He walked among us. He was given the name Emmanuel that means God with us. The light has shone 
on Zebulun and Naphtali, and on most of the world. There's still some regions where this light needs to go, and it will. And this light that we're talking about, Christ, this Messiah, continues to shine through the Holy Spirit and church. He is enthroned and ruling over the church and creation. He is expanding his governance through the gospel. Every salvation creates a citizen of heaven, of his kingdom. There's the expansion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, his power, he has fulfilled many of Isaiah's messianic prophecies. Through the first coming of the baby, of Messiah, of the light, of Jesus Christ. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time. But there will come a day when the last trumpet will sound and the remnant will be resurrected and caught up in the clouds with King Jesus who will descend and destroy and deliver the new creation, the kingdom of God with its everlasting peace, with its everlasting justice, with its everlasting righteousness, with its everlasting joy. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will surely fulfill this part of the prophetic promises too. And for now, the remnant, the people of God, you and I, must trust the Lord and walk in the light just as Isaiah's people were encouraged to do right here in this text. The king of light has overcome the darkness. John 1, 5. We overcome the darkness when we walk in his light. John 12, 35. Let's make it our goal to walk in his light in 2024. Amen.